Right, in view of what Robert's just said, I will try very hard not to be pathetic from beginning to end. <laughs> right. Now then, at last, we return to Philippians. My goodness, we've had quite um, a long break from it. Uh, Philippians, and uh, we're actually on a chapter four now. Right. Philippians chapter four. And uh, what we're going to do tonight is uh, just, just do the, the first seven verses. Uh, let's, let's just read, read through it first. He, he says, Therefore, my brethren, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Cytiki to agree in the Lord. And I ask you also, true yoke fellow, help these women, for they have laboured side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let all men know your forbearance. The Lord is at hand. Have no anxiety about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Um, the last verse in particular reminds very much a story I heard. It's actually about an Anglican vicar, you know, so it just ties in with what Robert was saying earlier. And uh, he went into a um, fish and chip shop and he ordered a piece of cod which passeth all understanding. Oh, get it. Um, <clears throat> now then, or this is a private joke, a piece of blob. <laughs> oh, only, Chris, only Chris will understand that. Right, now then. <clears throat> right, let's, let's, let's do this a verse at a time. Right? Paul is here beginning to wind the letter up now. You know, I mean, as he's writing, he's obviously basically said what he wants to say, but he's just winding up. There's just a few points that he wants to get in here. Um, now, it, it starts off, he says, therefore, my brethren. Now, <clears throat> with Paul, you'll find, if you read through all the letters that he wrote, you'll find that he's really big into this therefore. He's, he's always saying therefore. And, and what he does is that he's saying, look, therefore, in, in light of everything I've just said, this is what it must now mean. Can you see, a therefore always means, in light of what I've said, this is what must happen, all right? So he says, therefore, my brethren. So what he's doing now, he says, look, I have outlined a lot of things to you, chapters one to three. Although I remember, of course, that the Bible wasn't written in chapters and verses. They, they were put in later, just as a helpful aid. But he says, look, because of everything I've said to you in this letter, all right, certain things now have to be said. Right? And he says, therefore, my brethren. And, and throughout the letter, I mean, Paul never forgets that he's talking to family. It's all children of God. Um, you know, sort of like Paul wasn't running a business corporation. Paul was a leader of churches. He was someone who knew that he was part of a wider family. And Paul always relates to people. He says, my brethren, my family. That is always the attitude that you find in Paul. Never stiff and starchy. You'll never get the idea that Paul is standing on some big rostrum with his kind of fingers pointing down. Paul was always one of the people he was talking about. He was always one of the people he was talking to. Paul, before he was an apostle, before he was a Bible teacher, before he was a what have you, 
Paul was a Christian. He was part of the family. And that attitude of love for his family. And he goes on to say, my brethren, he says, whom I love. And that phrase there in the Greek is agapetos, and it's from the verb, verb agape. And we've seen before, haven't we, that agape was the word that the New Testament uses exclusively of the love of God. It's not the word for family love, it's not the word for sexual love. Greek has different words, it's much better language than ours in that sense. Paul here specifically saying, look, whom I love with the love of God. He says, God's love is in my heart. I am part of this family, I love you as my family. He says, whom I love, and then he said, and I long for. Remember, he's, he's writing to this church, and he hasn't seen them for yonks, has he? He's missing them. And when we did chapter 1, we saw that this verb here, long for, is the Greek word, you know, verb. If you had a dog, and you went away, and the dog was pining, that, that's, that's the verb here. Paul's here, pining. You know, I long to see you again. That's the relationship that Paul has got with these people. They're not numbers. They're not people in a church who need sorting out. They're his family. That's the attitude that Paul had. Because, of course, that's the attitude that the Lord had to Paul. When the Lord looks down on us, first and foremost, we are his children. No matter how hard we're finding it, no matter how out of order we might be at any one moment, we are the children of God. And that is always the attitude of God, our loving Father. And therefore, Paul, as a father to churches, that was his attitude as well. He loved these people. And he says, my joy and my crown. He says, you are my joy. I mean, you joy over people you love, don't you? Uh, you know, I mean, the Bible talks about in James, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. If you love someone, you enter into what they're feeling. And Paul says, I joy after you, you are my joy. And he says, my crown, my crown. Now, I don't think he's thinking here in the sense of reward at the judgment seat of Christ. I think, you know, it's more the way a father looks at his child, they, oh, he's, you know, he's my joy and crown. You know. Paul is like a father to children. That's the attitude that he had. He is not a manager to shop floor. And as lots of you have experienced, many churches, when it comes to leaders of the churches, it's manager to shop floor. You know, I mean, the only thing they haven't got are elections going for a shop steward. You know, and that's the, you know, a, a distant eldership up there. And No, Paul was one of the people. He was simply a member of the family. And what he says, he says, stand firm thus in the Lord. Stand firm. Now Paul's introducing various things he's going to say. This, this Greek verb here, stand firm, is stake up. And what it means is to stand upright. Okay. Paul's not just talking here about having a resolute stand. All right. You could say to someone, oh, look, okay, having a tough time, but stand firm. That's not what Paul is getting here in the Greek. It's a Greek verb which means to stand upright and he's using it here in the sense of a willing submission to the authority of the Lord. This verb stako is a military verb, all right? It means to stand to attention. It's a military phrase, all right? And it specifically means standing to attention with the express purpose of receiving orders in readiness to carry them out. And that is what Paul is saying. He says, I hope that you're standing to attention and I hope that you're receiving the orders that I'm giving so that you're able to carry them out. Keep your finger in Philippians, but just flick further on into 2 Timothy when Paul writes to old Timothy. <clears throat> and this is one of the pictures that Paul uses 
he uses it two or three times. And uh, in chapter 2, verse 4, he says, No soldier on service gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to satisfy the one who enlisted him. Now, when he's talking about that a soldier, a good soldier, doesn't get entangled in civilian disputes, I mean, obviously, soldiers then in the Roman army were allowed to get married. They had time off, they had family, they had hobbies and things like that. You know, they weren't only killing people, you know. Um, and what he's saying isn't that, that, I mean, there's a kind of a real super-spirituality you find some people. And, and kind of, it's this thing that, the, what I call the normal things of life, you know, the mundane things like falling in love and getting married and having children, you know, all the mundane things. It's almost as if they think, well, you know, that is a distraction almost. Now, Paul's not saying that. What he's saying is, a good soldier is first and foremost ready for battle. Can you see? Because a good soldier knows that, yeah, he may well have a wife and kids. All right, he may well have a BMW in the drive, he may well have a nice house, but what he knows, he's a soldier. If his country is attacked, then he's far better, he'll protect his family far better as a soldier than as a husband, you see. So what Paul is saying, there's something very specific about the role of a soldier. Because when, uh, sort of like someone who works in a factory goes to work, I mean, he's doing it for his wife and his family and his kids, blah, blah, blah. But with a soldier, him going to work can actually be the things that means that he's got a family and a house and kids to come home to. Because he's there to defend the country. And what Paul is saying is that a Christian should be like a good soldier, always ready for battle. So that when the commanding officer speaks, when the Lord speaks, you're ready to hear what he says and to get your head down and to do it. And so that is what Paul is here saying. He's saying, look, stand to attention. He says, be ready and willing to receive orders from the Lord in a willing submission to him so that you carry them out. Because a good soldier is submissive to the commanding officers, obviously, or he's not a good soldier. And the orders that Paul is talking about here is everything he's writing in the letter. He said, therefore, he's he. And he's saying, look, Everything I've written to you, he says, look, this has got to be read, it's got to be understood, it's got to be inwardly digested, and then it's got to be done. It's got to be put into practice. And of course, in James, and eventually we're going to do a verse by verse of the Epistle of James, all right? I call that the Epistle to blow your socks off, and when we do it, you'll see what I mean. In James, it says, don't just be hearers of the word, be doers of the word. And uh, James talks about receiving the implanted word. Now, you can receive the word of God, you can receive the truth, it can go in your mind. Brilliant. But that's not what the Bible calls the implanted word. The word of God, the truth that sets us free, only does so when it becomes implanted, when the word goes in and it grows and it changes us. You see what I mean? That we respond to it. That is how the word of God sets us free. And Paul is saying, right, there are orders here, please ensure that you're actually carrying them out. And the orders are everything, everything that he has covered so far. Now, in verse 2, he goes on and he says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Now, you'll remember from the studies that we've done thus far in this letter, that the whole tenor of the letter, if you want a one word that sums up Paul's burden here in this letter to a Christian church, it's <coughs> unity between them. Their family, they're part of a church, they're following the Lord, and therefore there must be unity and harmony. That is the burden of the letter, the unity that we have in the Lord, the oneness. 
But now he's going to get really specific and he's going to name names. Now, good teaching will always do this. Good teaching will always do this. Good teaching will go from the general to the specific, all right? It's got to be general first, all right? You've got to make sure that people understand the general truth of what the Bible's saying. But it's then got to go and it's got to be very specific, i.e., it's got to go. Teaching will not just be theoretical, it will be applied in whatever way is needful. Otherwise, it's not actually teaching in the biblical sense. Uh, in past studies, we've seen that the Greek word, all right, uh, for teaching, or doctrine, you know, it's the same word, it doesn't mean theory. It means theory put into practice. That is the specific meaning of the Greek word. It does not mean theory. It means the theory being put into practice. That is teaching, all right? And, of course, the point is that Paul is not interested here in just writing letters and informing people of doctrinal facts. He's interested in discipling people. And, of course, at the end of Mark's Gospel, Jesus said, make disciples of all nations. And in the Greek, the word for a disciple would be a learner, a learner, um, or an apprentice. Now, that's the best word, apprentice. Uh, you don't get a lot of that around today. Uh, but the apprentice, what happened was that the apprentice, he, he'd find a job. And, I mean, apprentices are paid a pittance, aren't they? They only actually really get the money when they're qualified. But an apprenticeship, you are apprenticed to someone who is already skilled in that trade. And the apprentice simply observes what his master does and copies. Is it? Now, that is what a discipling thing is. I.e., that we're not just interested in getting people to know the Lord. Well, we are interested in that, but not just. We then want to show people through teaching in how we live. Not just what the Bible says. But look, this is how I do it. This is the actual practical application. Can you see? So that discipling people involves applying the Word of God in whatever area of their lives they need it. Now, I'm not now talking about the authoritative discipleship thing that some churches do, you know, where you're never safe from someone crashing into an area of your life with advice from the Lord or rebuke or whatever, or heaven prophecies and words of knowledge. Lord, save us from all that stuff. That's not what I'm talking about. It's a discipleship with people looking at the example of others who are their friends. Who are their friends? It's not an authoritarian thing. But nevertheless, Paul is interested in applying the word deeply and specifically in people's lives. Now, the general tenor of the letter is unity. So now, Paul gets very, very specific and he names names. Incidentally, um, we did a question time a few weeks ago, didn't we? And I ended up yakking on about the Catholic Church or something. It's quite interesting because uh, Robert and Bella sent that to a friend of theirs, um, you know, and, and he sort of like sent the tape back that he talks into. And what he was saying was, it's quite interesting because people shy away from this, all right? He was saying, everything on that tape is true, but don't say it fundamentally, and don't name names. Yeah, because I was naming certain Bible teachers who teach certain false doctrines, isn't I? And he said, don't name names. That tape is going out. Don't name names. The interesting thing is, that is completely unbiblical. Paul names names. And in regards to false teachers and Christians who are troublemakers, you'll find out that Paul will name them specifically, and he'll say, avoid so-and-so, did me great harm. And he spoke about a couple who he put out of the church, he handed them over to Satan because they were teaching false doctrine. Paul wasn't frightened to name names. 
and we mustn't be either. So here, Paul names names. Now, let's actually have a look at it. Euodia and Syntyche. He says, I entreat you to agree in the Lord. Now, Euodia and Syntyche, okay, are female names. This is two ladies that Paul is talking about. And fundamentally, what we've got here is these two ladies are not getting on. <laughs> All right. They are not getting on. Now, there's something vital here to understand. All right. We are not here dealing with an instance of troublemakers. All right? That is not what Paul is talking about here. Euodia and Syntyche, though they're being told, look, please get on, they are not troublemakers. Uh, troublemakers, you know, these kind of self-obsessed people, they end up falling out with each other, okay, because of their own self-obsession. They can't actually get along with anyone. If, you know, if, if anyone gets to know them long enough, eventually you'll do something they don't like and they'll fall out with you. And then they'll get in with another little clique. Can you see? And these people just go from clique to clique. That is not the situation here. Here, with Euodia and Syntyche, what we've got is an honest-to-goodness personality clash. All right. Now, let me just show you, all right, that here we're not talking about troublemakers. We're talking about, okay, simply two people are having a personality clash. Firstly, Euodia and Syntyche are long-standing members or long-standing people in a biblical church. Paul knows them personally, but as we've seen, Paul hasn't met the people from this church for years. So Euodia and Syntyche are a long-standing part of a biblical church, point number one. Point number two, these two have been of great help to Paul personally. Look, verse three, he says, for the, it helped them for they have laboured side by side with me in the gospel. All right. So these are friends of Paul. All right. They've really been a help to him in the past. And thirdly, Paul makes no mention of discipline or anything like that at all. This naming of names is not rebuke. We are not dealing here with two troublemakers. When Paul was naming troublemakers, he made it very, very clear that they were troublemakers. What we've got here, Euodia and Syntyche, two ladies in the church, were lovely, mature disciples. They really loved the Lord, and their lives were, for the most part, exemplary. It's just that they had a real job getting on with each other. Now, I'm really glad that this is in here, and I'll tell you why. I mean, when you get a discordant note in a church between people, it's not always a question that you've got some real troublemaking going on. Sometimes it can be. But sometimes it's just the fact that really mature Christians, all right, who love the Lord, they're following the Lord, there's just a personality clash. It's nothing more than that. And of course, it will be a very unwise leader who diagnosed the personality clash as troublemaking. It's not. They're two completely separate things, all right. And personality clashes sometimes happen. We're all different, all sinners, all right. But here, Paul is not talking about, now look, tell, you know, get these two sorted out or they're off. He's not talking about that. They're friends of his, but they just have a job getting on, you see. And so what Paul says, he says, look, I entreat you. He says, please, ladies. <laughs> He's not going to get yourself sorted out. This isn't a rebuke thing. It's just Paul saying, look, please try and get along. I know it's hard. I know you love everyone else in the church, but each other. 
Uh, now it's hard, but you have got to, for the sake of unity, really work at it. And what he does is he says in verse 3, and I ask you also, true yoke fellow. Now we don't know who this true yoke fellow is. It's the actual person who personally received this letter. Presumably one of the elders at the church, all right, and another friend of Paul's. And what Paul is saying, look, you must help them in this. He appeals to them, look, you've, you, you've got to work harder to get on, all right? And then he says to this bloke, look, please, get in there and help them as well. And you see, the thing is that the best person to step in and help two people who are having a personality clash is someone who is a friend of both of them. You see that? I mean, it may be that, say, two A and B don't get on. I mean, you know, maybe they love each other, they want to get on, but they're always rubbing each other up the wrong way, all right? But when you've got a situation where A and B are both really good friends with C, what a marvellous opportunity for C to step in and say, now, come on, you know, let me help. Let's, let's try and, you know, oil this. Let's get this running in a smoother way. And that is exactly what Paul's saying here. He's not talking to this true yoke fellow, look, step in with correction as an elder. He's not talking about that. He's saying, look, you know them both. You're a friend of both of them. You're the best person to help. Because you, you know, you like them, they both like you, well, that's perfect, isn't it? Now all you've got to do is get them to like each other. Now, I know that's a difficult bit, but what Paul is saying, now look, come on, get in there, try and get this sorted out. But the important thing here, okay, is that here we've got, if you like, trouble in the church, we've got discordance in the church. But the point is, Paul was well aware of the difference of troublemaking and two people having a personality clash. And I'm just really glad that this is in there. Because, I mean, again, it's another example that, I mean, the Word of God, it comes from exactly where we are. It is not necessarily the case that because people don't get on that there's some kind of great division or split there that needs dealing with. There might be. It might be that people aren't getting on because there's resentment, there's hatred or whatever, there's backbiting and stuff like that. Yeah, that's got to be dealt with. But here we've got a common or garden personality clash, all right? And the early church had common or garden personality clashes. And in fact, if you read through the Acts of the Apostle, you'll find that Paul had a massive one with Barnabas. Had this blazing row and wouldn't, wouldn't minister again. Right. And it was simply not, I mean, there's no doubt in my mind, any anger, they said sorry to each other, but their personalities were wrong. And so they thought, look, it's far better. Let's keep a little bit of distance, okay? We'll be friends, but there's no point us trying to work really closely together. Now that is practicality. That is a very practical, Paul knew what it was to have a personality clash. And he didn't mean he was a troublemaker. So here he writes to this church, he says, look, you odious entirety personality clash here. Look, I understand, but true yoke fellow, whoever he is, you know, is going to step in and we'll get this sorted out. All right, so I'm, I'm glad that's in there. The Bible is so very, very practical. Um, also, let me say in regards to you odious entirety being women, all right, um, that Paul here speaks so incredibly highly of two women in the church. Now, this is significant only because of it throughout history what men have done to women in the church. That's the only reason. I mean, you know, if Paul had seen chauvinism at work, he'd have thought, where on earth did this come from? This isn't what I was talking about, you see. But because there has been so much chauvinism around, you know, so many churches where basically women are just there to make the cups of tea, all right, it's tremendously important that Paul speaks so highly of them. And he speaks highly of them as two people who really helped him in his work for the Lord. Paul was working with these two in the past, 
in regards to spreading the gospel. Now, this, this kind of teaching that you get that goes around, okay, that Paul was down on women, you'll hear this in some quarters, Paul was down on women, they say, is absolute rubbish. Paul was not down on women at all, any more than Paul was down on marriage. And in past studies, we've looked at this, because, you know, Paul nowhere speaks against marriage. He nowhere speaks against women and stuff like that. And it's a, a sheer fabrication that people say that. Now, what we saw in the Church Life series was quite simply that women are precluded from being elders and therefore Bible teachers, because Bible teacher is an eldership thing in the church. No, you know, no problem with someone doing occasional teaching, all right? No problem with that. But a woman being a Bible teacher, all right, because that's an eldership thing. So we see that women are precluded from being elders and they're precluded from being deacons. But remember, in the church life story, we also saw this, so are most men. I mean, can't have everyone as elders and deacons. It would be silly, wouldn't it? You know, I mean, you'd be drowning in eldership. But apart from that, okay, the Bible precludes eldership and deacons, right? But apart from that, women have a tremendously important role. Here's the point. Eldership and being a deacon are the only thing that women are precluded from. Can you see? The field is wide open. And all this stuff about, you know, let the women just sit there and be quiet, and let the men get on with it, is not in the slightest what the Bible teaches. Women have a tremendously important role in the life of the church, and not just making the coffee. Now, whereas women may feel that, okay, that falls more to them, in the same way, I mean, okay, a woman may at home mostly do the cooking, uh, but then on the other hand, I'll bet it's the bloke who puts the dustbin out. You see, I mean, it's, it's just that different jobs get assigned to different people. Okay, women have a tremendously important role to play in the church. And we saw as well in the Church Life series that elders are assumed to be married. Now, it doesn't mean that you can't have a single elder. Paul was. But by and large, it just comes over that the average statistical elder is going to be married. And the Bible expects that. All right. Now, why is that? Well, it's because the wives' input is needed in eldership decision-making. Now, the Bible's quite clear that the elders, they make the decisions, and they carry the can for it. They're responsible before God. But, I mean, all this sort of stuff we find churches where, you know, the elders' meetings is just the elders. Uh, we've known churches where they're not actually, they, they do not let on to anyone what has been discussed at an elders' meeting, including their wives. Now, that is tremendously wrong. The Bible teaches that husband and wife are one flesh. I mean, you know, so there, I mean, Robert and I don't have anything so grand as elders' meetings, believe me, you know, but we do get together and pray on that. But the point is, Belinda and Bella are there. Now, Robert and I make the decisions, but my goodness, we need that female input. Because if the only leadership input was just coming from the bloke, she would have a very imbalanced church. Is he? And so the role of women in regards to the gifts of the Spirit and stuff like that, that whole caboodle is vitally important. And what we saw in the Church Life series, there were simply two conditions, all right? And they were simply this. If married, the woman must be under her husband's authority, all right? And secondly, the women must have long hair or be in the process of growing it long as a sign to the demons and the angels that they are under the authority of their husbands. That's a little sign. Men, short hair, 
women, long hair. And God has built that in. That is a signal to the spirit world, all right? That's what God says. So, uh, in regards to that, it's all on the church life tapes and, 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 and also the tape in the general teaching, hats and hair. But the important thing in regards to it is this real place that Paul gives to Euodia and Syntyche. You know, they were friends. They helped him in so many ways. Paul honoured them in every way that he could. Okay, right, so there's that. Now then, verse 4, he goes on, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always again, I will say rejoice. Now let's, let's just check earlier chapters. We've done each of these verses, but just go to chapter 1 and verse 18. Paul says, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, I shall rejoice. Go to chapter 3 and verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. All right. Verse 4. Okay, it's one we're seeing. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Go down to verse 10. I rejoice in the Lord greatly. Now this, if I'm not mistaken, is an emphasis. Would you not agree? This, this is kind of coming through a little bit loud and clear, isn't it? And it tells us this. Paul is really into rejoicing. Paul was a rejoicing kind of a guy. Now what is rejoicing? Well, rejoicing is being glad. Now, when Paul is saying rejoice, all right, what's he always saying? Rejoice in the Lord. He says, be glad in the Lord. Be thankful in the Lord. Can you see? Uh, now, what a contrast that is to sometimes our, our morbid self-centeredness and obsessions, isn't it? Oh, poor old me. You know, our moaning and our groaning. I mean, okay, yeah, it's hard sometimes. I moan and groan. But when I moan and groan, I know I shouldn't be. If I'm moaning and groaning, who am I looking at? Me. And what are my affections doing? What are my emotions doing? They're feeling sorry for me. Now what Paul is saying, he says, look, rejoice in the Lord. Don't, don't worry so much about yourself. Now there's a lovely reason for this. It's because the Lord's so worried about you. Is he? Now if we get on with looking to the Lord and rejoicing, I mean, let's face it, you and I are never, ever, ever going to go to Lake of Fire. If God never does anything else, there's something there to rejoice in, isn't there? And Paul is rejoice, 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 rejoice. Getting our eyes, our mind, our thinking off of ourselves, off of our problems, and onto the Lord. Why? Because he's done so much for us. I mean, it's like picture. I mean, you dads, all right? Say you've bought, you've bought your kid a lovely present, all right? You know, that, oh, they'll love this. I'm just going to surprise them with it. I've got a lovely gift here. And little Johnny comes home from school, and there's dad, oh, there you are, you know. What's Dad waiting for? He's waiting to see his little boy's face. Oh, Dad, that's brilliant, all right? And the little boy walks past him, oh, rotten day at school today. That's, that's what we're like, isn't it? I mean, it's ridiculous, isn't it? I mean, if a lovely present ain't going to get our minds off of a bad day at school, is he? And that's what Paul's talking about, rejoice in the Lord. And what he says is, he says, rejoice in the Lord always, again, I will say, will will. Rejoicing has got to be an act of the will. It's a decision. It's not a feeling. If we rejoice only when we feel like it, we're not actually rejoicing. Uh, the Bible talks about us, you know, the sacrifice of praise, bringing to God the sacrifice of praise. A sacrifice costs something. Now then, therefore, if I only praise God when I feel like it, then I'm not actually praising him. 
if our praise isn't including sacrifice of praise, so that, I mean, you know, so that at least if we don't feel like it, we're still praising him, then that's not real praise. There's a sacrifice of praise. What that tells us is this, the Lord knows that often we don't feel like it. So then he expects the sacrifice of praise. It is an act of the will. It's not an act of feelings. And the rule is quite simply this, and we're going to see this more powerfully next time, um, is that if we, if we go with all the truth of the Bible with our will, say praise, if we do it with our will, the feelings will eventually follow. It might not be ten minutes later, it might even take months, it might take two or three years. But the point is, we control what we feel ultimately, the gift of self-control, you know, fruit of the Spirit. We do that with an act of the will, by keeping our mind and our will in obedience with God's Word. So therefore, we can rejoice at any time. And any idea, oh, I can't rejoice at the moment, is rubbish. We can rejoice at the moment. It's up to us. We're either going to be faithful to the Lord or we're going to be petulant. But when someone's being petulant, you can't say, I can't help it. No, I will rejoice. And Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always, again I say rejoice. And all over this epistle, rejoice, 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 rejoice. He repeats it again and again and again. Vitally important. Let's count our blessings. That's what Paul is saying. It's so easy to get, you know, to get wrapped up with the thing that's heavy on our heart at the moment. Yeah, it's probably a heavy thing to bear. Of course it is. But let's not forget the good things, what God has done for us. Okay. Now then, verse 5, he says here, he says, Let all men know your forbearance. This is a bit of a funny old translation, actually, because, uh, I mean, forbearance is not a very good word here at all. But he, there's something here, and he says, Let all men see this something about you. All right? Now, what is this something about you that my translation, at any rate, translates forbearance? The Greek word is epikes, uh, and it's from the noun ikos, which means reasonable. Questions... Oh, spell it, right? Uh, E-P-I-E-I-K-E-S is the English transliteration. And on the last C, there's a little thingy at the top, all right? E-P-I-E-I-K-E-S, epikes, and there's a little thingy on the last D, all right? That's the Greek word here translated forbearance. And it comes from ikos, E-I-K-O-S, which means quite simply reasonable. And what it means is sweet reasonableness or gentleness. Sweet reasonableness or gentleness. It's actually the opposite of contentiousness and being quarrelsome. Sometimes a good way to understand what a word means is to see what its direct opposite. Some words have a direct semantic opposite, like black and white, alright? So if you understand the thing that it's not, it helps you understand what it is. And Paul says, be sweetly reasonable. And this is the opposite of being contentious or being quarrelsome, all right? Moderation. Moderation. Still the wrong word. <laughs> um, just go over to James. Go over to the epistle of James and just something that he says that will just give us the idea of this. James chapter 3 and verse 17. James chapter 3 and verse 17. And he says, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle and open to reason. That is what it means. Gentle and open to reason. Sweet reasonableness. Now then, what Paul is saying 
is that, remember, he's giving orders. He's saying to this church, I hope you're standing at attention, ready to receive your orders from the Lord. And the order is, be sweetly reasonable. Or put in another way, do not be contentious, do not be quarrelsome. And it's that, Paul is saying, that is what we are to be like. Now, that raises a question, doesn't it? Oh, but is that possible? You know, I mean, the Lord knows what a crabby old so-and-so I am sometimes. Is that possible? The answer here, I wasn't actually talking about myself personally, though, I hasten to um, <laughs> Yes, I was. Um, and the answer is yes, it is possible. Now, why is it, all right? Because he goes on to say, the Lord is at hand. I mean, look, my briefcase is at hand. It's right there, just got to reach out and touch it. Bang and throw it across the room. Can you see? He's saying, it can be done because the Lord is at hand. He's right there. And of course, Jesus is himself sweetly reasonable. He's not contentious. I mean, sort of, Jesus is not kind of like, you know, roaming the universe looking for an argument. <laughs> he's, he's, he's kind of everywhere wanting to bless us. So because Jesus is like that, we can be like that. Jesus is right there, the Lord is at hand, and that is what he is like. Now, in the Bible, when you get this phrase, the Lord is at hand, or something is at hand, it can mean either time or space. Or it can either mean the Lord is at hand, or he's just round the corner and he's going to be coming back any minute. It can mean that, all right? Or it can be space, or he's right there. Now, probably here, it's a bit of both, all right? Now, what Paul is saying, look, you know, on the one hand, the Lord is right there. So if he's there, and if that's what he's like, we can be like it, because he's in us. He lives in us. And he says, secondly, any moment the Lord could come, which he could. The rapture could be any moment. All right. And in Peter, it talks about the fact that if we believe in his coming, we're going to purify ourselves. I mean, we don't particularly want Jesus to come back and find us in the middle of some flaming, contentious row with somebody. You know, we'd like him to come back and see a bit of himself in us at the time. Can you see? So the point is that what Paul is saying, look, you know, this is what you can enter into. This is what you can enter into. Argumentativeness, which is the opposite of being sweetly reasonableness, is a sin. We've got to repent of it. We've got to repent of it. Peace between people isn't going to happen as long as there's contentiousness in our hearts. If someone's a contentious person, they will find their relationships on whatever level continuously disrupted by their contentiousness because it's always just under there waiting to come out. These people, okay, have a million things that are, you know, that are a red rag to a ball. Someone who's really at peace, there aren't many things that are a red rag to a ball like them. Because what does it matter? The red rag to the ball only applies to our sinful nature. There are no red rags to a bull as far as Jesus is concerned. He's not like that. And so Paul says, look, let your sweet reasonableness be clear to all men. All right, that's, that's incredible because the Lord is at hand. Okay. Now, in verse 6, he says, Have no anxiety about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. Now, we'll dive into this one. A lot of misunderstanding. Have no anxiety about anything. Now, I, I just want to bring out the comprehensiveness of that. Uh, in another translation, which is it's, uh, one by, I can't remember which one, it's in nothing be anxious. Do not be anxious about anything. In nothing be anxious. Now, can you see the broad sweep of that? 
a Christian should never be suffering from anxiety. Or when we are, if we're being anxious, that's wrong, it's a sin. Now then, anxiety, what is this Greek word, alright? It's merim mayo. Have I got to spell that one as well? My goodness, we're going to have problems when we do the demonology series. I'm going to have to spell every blooming Greek word. Right, okay. A-N-X-I-E, oh sorry, that's the English one. M-E-R-I-M-N-A-O. Merim nao. And what it actually means is to draw in different directions. Alright? The Greek word for anxiety means to draw in different directions. And the idea behind it is distraction. When something is distracting you. Alright? And biblically, the idea behind it is when you've got something so concerning you and on your mind that it takes your eyes off of the Lord and distracts you from trusting him for whatever outcome it is you're worrying about. So anxiety is the idea when you're so dis something is so on your mind, it's so eating you up, it's so getting at you, that it distracts you and your eyes aren't on the Lord anymore. Rather than trusting the Lord for the outcome, all right, your eyes are on yourself, your eyes are on the problem, and it's getting to you. Now that is biblically what anxiety is, and that is the anxiety or worry, another word for it, all right, the Bible says is a sin. In the Old Testament, one of the Psalms, it says, fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. Worry, anxiety, fretting will lead only to evil. It will get you out of fellowship with God, all right? And it will do nothing but maybe bring your dying day a little nearer. And there are some people who do exactly that. They simply worry, and they're providing no answer for what they're worrying about, but they're bit by bit, systematically, making themselves crabby old people who probably die a little earlier than they would because they put so much strain on their heart without a friend in the world. You see? Worry is a sin. Now, what we've got to do is just to define here, all right, what worry is and isn't as well. When Paul talks about this being free from anxiety, in nothing be anxious, all right, he is not, I repeat, not talking about some irresponsible, well, I'm not worried, I don't care, it's not my problem, is it? That is not the attitude that Paul is talking about here. And indeed, you'll find some people that that's their attitude. No, they're not worried. Maybe because they can give monkeys. That's not what Paul's talking about. That, when you get these people that, you know, never worried because, I mean, you know, they couldn't care less. They're, they're, that is an excuse for avoiding responsibility for life and circumstances. All right. Um, in the King James Version, we're going to look at Matthew 6, verse 34 in a minute, but don't turn to it yet. But there's a translation in the King James Version which has proved very, very unhelpful because it's been translated there that Jesus said, take no thought for tomorrow. Now, that is most definitely not what it says in the Greek, take no thought for tomorrow. All right. Now, that idea doesn't help here. But there are some people, even Christians, and they'll, they'll kind of, you know, well, I mean, take no thought for tomorrow. I'm not worried. You see? Now, that can simply be an excuse for being irresponsible, maybe, for being lazy. I mean, let's say um, that someone hasn't got a job, all right, and they're praying for a job, and, uh, but they're not looking for a job. Oh, I'm not worried, they say. Oh, no, take no thought for tomorrow. You see? That, that isn't what the Bible says at all. Or there are many situations. I mean, say someone, um, 
I mean, we talked about husband and wives arguing earlier, weren't we? Or he's wondering why everyone here whose husband and wife aren't sitting together at any rate, you see. I mean, it's like, say a husband came to the meeting, all right, and, and, and he and his wife have clearly had a row, all right? And, uh, you know, sort of like his wife's all upset or something like that. And he's like, oh, you know, don't you think to, you know, go and... and he's like, oh, no, she'll be fine. I'm not worried about it. What he's saying is, I'm not willing to. But he's trying to make it all sound kind of, oh, well, it'll all come out in the wash, won't it? That is an attitude of irresponsibility. That is not the free from anxiety that the Bible is talking about. Now, the right attitude that the Bible is talking about here in regards to being free from anxiety is quite simply this. When you have genuinely done everything you can about it, whatever it is, Leave the bit you can't do about it in the Lord's hands and trust Him. That is freedom from anxiety. It's when you've done whatever your bit is thoroughly, then the bit that you can't do, leave in the Lord's hands and forget about it. But don't sit there refusing to do your bit under the pretext of, well, no, I'll take no thought for tomorrow. That is twisting what the Word of God says. It's saying that whatever it is, having done everything you can, do not let it distract you. Do not let it pull you in different directions. Don't let it distract you, all right, from following the Lord in regards to everything else. You see? Okay, we got a problem. But we can't afford to be problem-oriented. Now, when someone's worrying about something, all, you know, it's just getting too much attention from them. Can you see? It's sort of worry, 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 fret, fret, fret. No, when you've done everything you can, leave it in the Lord's hands and get on with the rest of what you can do in regards to the rest of life. But don't let other things close down and come to a halt because you're too busy being anxious about this one thing that you can't do anything about. Now, can you get the idea there? Having done everything you ought to do, then what you can't do, leave that in the Lord's hands and trust Him. Don't let it distract you so that you're then not doing other things, all right? Now, our sinful natures come out in different ways, uh, different ways in different people, all right? You know, I mean, sort of some people are really loud mouths, other people, are, they hide in silence, don't they? Both equally sinful. The person who's a loud mouth and a braggart and a show-off, you know, got to be the centre of attention, that's sinful. But these people who hide behind silence, that is also sinful. Our sinful natures come out in different ways in different pe people. And in regards to this subject, it comes out in, you know, in two ways. With some, it's worry, worry, worry. Fret, 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 fret. Rush, 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 as I used to say to someone who no longer comes to this church anymore. Perhaps it's because I said it to I don't know. But, you, can you see, some people, they're worriers. That, that is the side that they're on. Worry, worry, worry. Um, you know, it's, it's always with them, heavy, 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 like a certain lager that I won't mention. You know, they're the opposite of it. They're not light, they're heavy. Can you see? <laughs> now, this is worry, fret, 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 okay. Now, where does that come from? Because if our sinful natures are throwing up a symptom, all right, um, or throwing up a branch, you've got to find out what the root is. I'm not now talking psychology. I'm talking simply this. What lies behind worry? Quite simply this, the desire to be in control. You see, it's, it's a frustration that I cannot control that situation. It's a frustration, oh no, I've got to leave that in the Lord's hands. And you see, in the sinful nature doesn't like leaving things in the Lord's hands. I'll tell you why. His hands do things with it that the sinful nature doesn't like. We like to be in control, don't we? Now, trust 
is the opposite of the need to be in control. I mean, this is what faith is all about. I've often said this, um, you know, that sort of like a husband and wife. I mean, I, I have faith in Belinda's fidelity to me as a wife. I do. Uh, I do. <laughs> and she's not chained up at home. No. But the point is, if I say I have faith in her, now, when is that faith proving itself? Well, if I'm with her and can see what she's doing, I'm not having faith with her because she couldn't possibly be carrying on with someone. I mean, could she? Because she's there. I mean, I can see her. No, you find out whether you trust your partner when you can't see what they're doing. Is it? Now, this is the whole point. What we tend to do, when we can see what God's doing, we trust him. But when we can't see what he's doing, worry, fret. Oh, what's going to happen next? All right. And what lies behind this is this desire to control. It's, it's, it's saying, I don't trust him. You know, the Lord. He's got, got shifty eyes. Don't trust him. This is what it is. Now, how, how can you have something more wicked than that? What more wicked attitude than, than, than to not trust the Lord? This is our heart so. When we're anxious in the way I've defined, we're not trusting the Lord. We're saying, I could do better. If it was in my hands, I, I, I know it would be all right, but it's, it's in the Lord's hands and don't trust him. That's really what our heart is shifty. The Lord's got shifty eyes, you know, is what we're saying. And that is rebellion against God. It's the desire to dominate. It's the desire to manipulate. It's the desire to have outcomes under our control. Now, can you see, the whole point is, outcomes for us are in the Lord's control, or ought to be. And kind of like, you know, our outcomes are not our responsibility. Our responsibility is obedience to him in the process. The outcome is down to him. And the crazy thing is that being anxious about the outcome simply means we're then out of fellowship regarding the process leading up to the outcome. And then the outcome might not even happen because we're too busy cocking it up because we think he's got shifty eyes and we're not trusting him. Can you see, that is what lies behind worry, 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 fret, 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 you see. It's, uh, you know, finding security in controlling things rather than saying, well, the Lord's in control. And if the Lord's in control, it doesn't matter whether I'm not in control. I'm just going to leave it in the Lord's hands, okay? So, this is how, with some people, it comes out. These are the worriers, the doers, you know, the rush, 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 you know, something, you know, a little something happens and bang, they're there. You know, the disaster hasn't happened yet and bang, they're there, worrying about it, you know. Fluster, 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 what we, you know. Now, this is the way that the sinful nature comes out in some people. Now, when that happens, and you see, with also, with people who don't normally worry, Nevertheless, there are occasions when they do worry. Can you see? I'm saying some people are more one way than the other, but even someone who's not generally a worrier can end up like this in regards to the biggie. You see? When they do suddenly find themselves worry, 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 fret, fret, fret. What's going to happen to my business? Oh my goodness, I've lost that customer. Most of my income is from that. Oh Lord, what, what was Panic, panic, panic. You see? That can happen to someone who doesn't normally worry but they're put in a situation where suddenly they don't trust the Lord anymore. Now, whether that is, 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 is a fairly constant thing in us, or whether it's something that just happens once in a blue moon, what is the way to freedom? What is the answer to it? Well, the answer is firstly, identify it. Identify it. In every regard, we must strip away our excuses. Now, when people are anxious, when we're anxious, all right, we've got two choices, all right? We can admit 
that we're anxious and say, this is a sin, I'm not trusting God, or we can say, well, I'm concerned. And we can try and put a veneer of Christian love on it or something like that, and out come all the excuses. I mean, yeah, it's quite valid to be concerned. But when someone's anxious, they're not concerned, they're anxious. They're concerned as well, but the Lord isn't worried that they're concerned. He's glad they're concerned. He's pinpointing the anxiety. So there we are, anxious. And the Holy Spirit is there. The big ping, finger is pointing at anxious, you see. And what way is the Lord's, and we're getting his finger and saying, no, Lord, it's concern. And we're, oh, no, Lord, I'm just concerned. Can you see? And we're shifting. We're calling it something else. When you're anxious, you are probably concerned as well. It is good that you're concerned, but it's not good that you're being anxious. If God's convicting someone of anxiety, he's not saying anything in regards to being concerned. All right. So therefore, excuses have to be stripped away, all right? And we have to identify it and repent of it. You say, sorry. Say, Lord, yeah, sorry, okay? And then stop thinking about ourselves all the time. Because the only way we end up worrying is because we're thinking about ourselves all the time. Think about the Lord, think about other people. You see? And we gradually get into self-obsession. That's the way out of it. Identify it, repent of it. We've got to get our minds off of ourselves, off of whatever it is. And it's like, have you noticed, all right, that you never actually end up worrying in, in, in the wrong sense of the word? You'll never actually end up worrying about a situation that doesn't affect you. I have never, ever been anxious or worried about a situation whose outcome wouldn't affect me in the slightest. I only ever worry about outcomes that affect me. Now, we could very, very quickly rush in, can we, and say, oh no, I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm worried about that person because I care for them. Or is it that they haven't taken my advice? You see, I have never worried about something that truly never affected me. Worry is always a symptom of the sinful nature. But, however, there have been many times when I am concerned about situations that don't affect me, because I love people. Can you see, worry is not of the law. Worry, anxiety, fretting is sinful nature, 100%. Nothing good comes out of it whatsoever, all right? Now, in others, in others, their sinful nature doesn't work like that. Uh, in regards to anxiety and this whole subject, uh, other people, their problem isn't that they're warriors. Their problem is they are so laid back that they are horizontal. Now, their freedom from anxiety, because they are, they are free of anxiety. You won't find these people worrying. There's a lightness in their step and, oh, what does it matter, they say. This is not, however, true freedom from anxiety, all right? It is the freedom from anxiety that you find with the ostrich who stuck its head in the sand. It is just total irresponsibility. It is a lazy, casual, lackadaisical laziness. Can't call it anything else. These people are worried about it because they couldn't give a monkeys about it. And the trouble with these people when they're Christians, if the warrior expects to do for God what only God can do. This Christian, all right, expects God to do for them what they're supposed to do. <coughs> do you see what I mean? I mean, these are the people, you know, lying in bed all day, waiting for God to bring them a job. You know, I mean, these are the people, whatever, whatever, you know, um, you know, sort of like, you know, these are the people gaily believing that God's going to revitalise their marriage. 
but they're not working at it. They're just waiting for their wife to change. They're just waiting for their heart. Oh, God's going to do it. I'm not worried about it. Can you see? That is simply lazy irresponsibility and escapism. The moment we expect God to do for us what the Bible says we must do for ourselves, bad scene. We've got to put that right. Now, these people, they're not worried, not because they're spiritual, not because they're trusting the Lord. That's what they say. That's what they say. Oh, I'm trusting the Lord, they say. No, the reason is, it's because they can't be bothered. Their freedom from anxiety is a lackadaisical, I can't be bothered. Pure escapism. Now, that is as sinful as anxiety. You see what I mean? They're just two sides of the same coin. All right. Now, what is the way to freedom for those people? We've seen the way to freedom for the warriors. What about these people, the horizontal herberts? All right. What about them? Well, the way to freedom is identify it, repent of it, the same as the first one, all right? Now, for the warriors, we say, get your mind off yourself. Get your mind off yourself, all right? That's the answer to that. What about these people? Well, their answer isn't getting their mind off themselves. It's getting their backside off the chair and get out there and start living and taking responsibility for life. You see? That's the way out of that one. Because this is laziness. This is irresponsibility, all right? We must be responsible for our own life. Now then, with that behind us, now go to Matthew chapter 6, all right? And, and I think we can get the, we, you know, we round up nicely now, basically, the, the Bible's entire teaching about anxiety, which isn't bad for just a bit of one Bible study, is it? Uh, Matthew chapter 6, um, it's, it, it's, it's the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we'll start reading from verse 25, all right? Verse 25. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 25. This is Jesus speaking. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious, Merim Mayu. Do not be anxious about your life, what you shall eat, what you shall drink, nor about your body, what you shall put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, being anxious, can have one cubit to his span of life? Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Now, all the lazy bits here is they're, oh, God, I don't have to go out and look after all the kids. They're getting the wrong. Oh, I don't know. I mean, marvellous. God's going to do it all they're saying, all right? He says, Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O men of little faith? Oh, God, I don't have to do anything after all. This is marvellous. I have a line tomorrow. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? Oh, thank you, Lord. You are going to pay that bill. I don't have to do any overtime. For the Gentiles seek all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them all but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be yours as well now here's the verse that gets wrongly translated in the king james version therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow merim mayu not take no thought of tomorrow it's an entirely different greek word therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow for tomorrow will be anxious for itself let the day's own trouble be sufficient for the day now can you see the point i mean verses 25 all right down to verse 32 is potentially the lazy man's christian charter isn't it <laughs> is it now then but you've got to bring 34 in and this verse 34, therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, that must be understood in the light of verse 
33, which is, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. What is that saying? Live in obedience to the Bible. You see, live in obedience to the Bible and you've got nothing to worry about. But not some irresponsible, oh, well, you know, I'm not going to do it, the law's going to do it. Can you see? There, verse 34 is in the light of verse 33. And what it boils down to is quite simply this. There is everything to diligently consider and work at. But there is nothing to be anxious about. I'll repeat that. There is everything to be diligently considered and to be diligently worked at. Everything. But there is nothing to worry about. Now that encapsulates nicely the Bible's teaching in regards to anxiety. Now let's 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 go on to the second part of verse six because Paul said, you know, have no anxiety, but basically he said, but but in everything he's saying, but rather, but rather, you know, don't be anxious, but rather he says, in everything, in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So he said. Don't be anxious about anything. And then he says, but pray about everything. Can you see? Now, he says with prayer, all right, it's just talking to the Lord. I mean, prayer is talking to the Lord. All right, simple as that. But he's a bit more specific. He says supplication. Supplication. What does the Bible talk about or mean when it's talking about supplication? Because there are different types of prayer. And that's to be expected. Prayer is talking to somebody. I talk to Belinda but we do different types of talking. Can you see? Prayer is talking to God, but there are different types of talking, all right? Now, supplication means to ask humbly. So between a man and a wife, all right, supplication is the equivalent of, a, oh, darling, I'd love a cup of coffee. Huh. See? That's supplication. It's asking, but it means to ask humbly. So it's when we're asking God to do something, either for us or someone else. That is what supplication means. And what Paul says, look, don't be anxious about things. Now, when things are out of our control, which they often are, that is when we invite the Lord in to do it for us. Can you see? But he'll only come in if we're not doing it ourselves. If you fight for yourself, the Lord won't fight for you. But if you don't fight for yourself, the Lord will fight for you. So therefore, in supplication, which means asking God to do things for us, but humbly. The word supplication means to come humbly. A, a supplicant in ancient English, you know, like old English, is someone who comes bowing and scraping before the king. Can you see there's a reverence, i.e. he's not demanding anything, but he's asking humbly, you see? Now, therefore, we cannot demand things from God and, and any attitude, but what we can do is come respectfully, not demanding, all right? Not coming and getting things as our divine right, you know, God, I demand this, blah, blah, blah. No, that's wrong. We come and we ask the Lord to do it, if it be his will. And it's request, supplication is requesting things in a sort of attitude that, if the answer is no, and sometimes God, God always answers prayer, and sometimes it's no, <laughs> that if the answer is no, that's okay by us. We accept that as God's best. If God's saying no, whether it's permanently or at the moment, it's for my good. You see? Whereas... When, when we say, oh, my, my, my prayer hasn't been answered and we're getting all frustrated and why hasn't it been answered, that means we were demanding. We weren't supplicating, we were giving God orders and now we want to know why he hasn't done what we said. 
Supplication is coming and asking humbly. You know, we need a bit of reverence for the Lord. He is our friend. We can feel safe at home. We can snuggle up to him. But there needs to be a bit of reverence as well. And Paul also says, and let there be with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. So he says, ask for things humbly, yeah, but let there be thanksgiving in regards to it. Now, that keeps us away from our shopping lists, doesn't it? I mean, a shopping list, we're, we're just, you know, Lord, I, I'm this, 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 and this. I mean, when you go to Sainsbury's, obviously, it's a supermarket. You don't go up to the cashier and say, oh, by the way, thanks for the stuff I got last week, you know, just off to get some more. Now, no, but we treat God like, you know, I mean, that's a supermarket. But with the Lord, when we come asking for things, we ought to be thankful for what he's already given. Can you see? That keeps the attitude. Whereas sometimes we treat him like Sainsbury's, don't we? March, you know, not a thanks for what I got last week, but, you know, well, I'm spending my money. It's mine, isn't it? See? You know, God's not a supermarket, all right? So a bit of reverence, and, and it, it, it keeps us grateful for what we've already got. As I said earlier, when Paul was saying rejoicing, we're, we're saved. If God never does anything else for us, that's something to rejoice in, isn't it? To our dying day. Because when our dying day comes, it's up, not down. That is something to be very, very thankful for. All right. And then in verse 7, he goes on and he says, and he's now talking about a consequence of this. A consequence. He says, and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now there's an awful lot in there, okay. First of all, he's talking about the peace of God. Now notice, it's his peace, not our peace. The peace of God. Um, the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians includes peace. Part of the fruit of the Spirit is, you know, love, joy, peace, goodness, kindness, blah, 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 nine of them. Only, I've said before, there's not nine fruits of the Spirit, there's one fruit, but there are nine flavours. And one of the flavours is peace. But the fruit of the Spirit is the fruit of the Spirit. It's what the Holy Spirit is like, it's what Jesus is like, it's what God the Father is like. All right. So, Paul here is talking about the very peace that God himself has. Now, the Greek word, and this is easy, it's Irene. It's where we get the word Irene from. The name Irene is simply the English transliteration of the Greek word for peace. And it means harmonious, and it means a sense of rest and contentment. Harmonious, and a sense of rest and contentment. The Old Testament counterpart, the Hebrew word, is shalom. Alright? That's the Hebrew word for peace. And shalom carries with it specifically the idea of wholeness, completeness. All right. Now the fact of God's peace tells us this. God is not in conflict with himself. Now can you understand what I mean by that? We're in conflict with ourselves, aren't we? When we did the salvation series, all right, we saw that when sin came into the world, it created conflict for each person in regards to three directions. We saw that Adam and Eve, they ran and hid from God. There was a dislocation spiritually. Man was cut off from God spiritually, the source of spiritual problems. We saw as well that when, because they ran and hid from the Lord, but when Jesus found them and they couldn't hide anymore, we saw what happened was that Adam blamed Eve, Eve blamed the devil, 
and then Adam eventually blamed God for creating Eve. Buck passing. Adam and Eve were now rowing. Can you see? And there was a dislocation in regards to other people. There was conflict between Adam and Eve. So there was conflict between Adam as an individual and God. Now there was conflict between Adam and his fellow men, and that is where social difficulties come from, is it? That is why people fall out, blah, 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 and that is what fellowship aims to correct, all right? But also we saw that when Adam and Eve, when they had sinned and ran out of fellowship with God, they both ran and hid because they were ashamed to be naked together. Now, they were husband and wife. There is no shame in nudity between husband and wife. No shame in it, it's a glory. Adam and Eve were nude. But now they're out of They were embarrassed. Sexual hang-ups. Now, that tells us that they were all screwed up inside in regards to themselves. Can you see? So when I say that God is not in conflict, can you see we are in conflict? Not just with the Lord, where our sinful natures conflict with each other, but we're also torn apart inside. Uh, there's a lovely verse in the Old Testament, one of the Psalms, and David says, Unite my heart to praise thy name. Now can you see there's a brokenness, a dislocation, where we need wholeness to come in. All right? Now it's in that sense that I say that God is not in conflict with himself. And in any personal sense, he's not in conflict with others either. Now, yeah, people are enemies of God, and God will judge people, yeah. But what I'm talking about, quite simply, is God doesn't have hang-ups. I mean, God is a really well-rounded, emotionally complete person. Can you see? Obviously. Now, that is what we mean by the peace of God, all right? Now, when you get a believer who's living in the fruit of the spirit of peace, i.e. they're living in this peace of God, all right, the, the fundamental thing about them is that they are together. Now, can you see what I mean by that? Rather than dislocated, rather than falling apart, they're together, they're whole. Each bit of them, if you see what I mean, and I'm not talking physically now, all right, each bit of them is working pretty much in harmony with the rest of the bits of them. Can you see what I mean? They're not all over the place. There's stability. They're stable. Um, they're consistent, they're not erratic. There's a consistency there. Their lives are orderly, not chaotic. Can you see, this is what the peace of God is all about. They are sweetly reasonable rather than antagonistic and bullshit. Are you getting the point? This is the whole thing about the peace of God. Now then, all believers, no matter how mature, have inner problems, yes. Go through turmoil sometimes, Yes. But the sign of the peace of God, as we're going to see keeping your heart, is this. No matter what they're going through, their problems, their turmoils, their hurts, their pains, their fears, they are always able to turn away from themselves to others. You get the point? The self-obsession isn't there. They're able to turn away from themselves to others. There aren't any bad days to catch them on. It's not a question of, well, you know, I mean, you know, I went to have a chat with them the other day and they were really helpful, but my goodness, I mean, now I know I'm a bit better, I, oh, crikey, would they be in a good mood? <laughs> you see, and people that you, you, you have to hang back because you can't run the risk. You see, because there are bad days. The peace of God present, prevents, I mean, it may be a disastrous day, everything might have gone wrong for them, but if you knock on the door, they'll be smiling. 
because they're not thinking about themselves, they think they're together, they pull themselves together. This is what the peace of God does, okay? They've got, um, and, and therefore they're at peace with other people, is he? They haven't got any axes to grind. Um, there's no bitterness or contentiousness underneath, just waiting to bubble out. You know, so that you might say something and think, oh goodness, I'll put them back there, they're barking at you, or suddenly they're reacting. No, there's because the peace of God is doing its work in them, all right? So they're doing, these people, can you see, they truly are doing what they can do, leaving the rest in God's capable hands. Now, what Paul says about the peace of God, all right, is he says, this peace of God, which passes all understanding, we'll be back to that in a minute, will keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, this peace of God, this fruit of the Spirit, it does a job. I mean, not only is it nice, but it does a job, all right? Now this word, and it keeps you, it keeps your heart and it keeps your mind. Now this word in the Greek, keep, what is it? It's phrou, P-H-R-O-U-R-E-O, thank you. From the noun phruros, which means a guard or a garrison. It's another military term. Paul is thinking military in this bit of the letter. It's a military term. And it has two meanings, this word keep, all right? It means, one, the blocking up of the way of escape, as in a siege. I.e., if you're laying a siege around a city, you surround the city so no one can come up. That's, come out. That's the first thing it means. You keep that city, all right? There's no way of escape. You're blocking up the way of escape. And then secondly, it also means protection against the enemy. So it's got two sides. B is resistance from eternal attack. When Satan and circumstances attack, if you've got the peace of God in your heart, it's a barrier. It protects you from the devastating effects of what's coming at you, and it holds you together. So it's a protection. But also, because it means blocking up the way of escape, as in a siege, it's also providing an internal sieging of our sinful natures. So that in that moment when naturally you will go, Brr! the peace of God is laying siege to your sinful nature. And it's holding it in. Not completely, or we'd be sinless. And it's a progressive thing. But can you see this twofold action of the peace of God? It protects from that which is coming from the outside to destroy you and get you out of fellowship with God. So it, one, it protects. It stands between you and the world and circumstances, but secondly, it stands between the world and your sinful nature. If it's keeping the attacks of the enemy out, it's also keeping your sinful nature well and truly in. And that is the two-sided operation of the Holy Spirit and his peace. And that is what Paul is talking about, that he will keep you. Now, he'll keep your hearts and he'll keep your minds. Heart. When the Bible talks about the heart, it's talking about the real you. You know, your, what's going on inside you, your emotions, your will, blah, 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 all right? Uh, the heart is the seat of moral, our, you know, the, the heart is the seat of our moral nature and our spiritual life. It's the moral decider of what sort of people we are, our desires and our will. Well, the Holy Spirit, the peace of God, keeps that in order, keeps the attacks out and keeps the sin in, all right? But also, not only keeping our hearts, our desires and our wills, but our minds, which is our perception and understanding. It guards our thinking so that we don't get into wrong thinking, whether again it's from the outside, false teaching and satanic lies, okay, or whether it, you know you find yourself thinking wrong about something, it checks you, you lose your peace. I'm resenting that person, bang, 
you know and you get it right immediately that is what the peace of God does it is keeping you so that you're in that kind of harmony with the Lord with other people and within yourself not perfectly I'm not talking about that no sin I'm not talking but substantially that is what Paul is talking about here now also this peace he says it passes all understanding now the point about that is quite simply this the peace of God passes all understanding in the sense it's not saying we can't understand the peace of God although we can't but it's saying that the peace of God is doing its job when we don't understand what's going on and it's when we don't understand what's going on that we're at our most vulnerable for anxiety and fretting blah 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 can you see so therefore what we've got this limited knowledge for a mature Christian is okay I used to only feel safe when I knew exactly what was going on now the Lord eventually showed me that that was my desire to control I was I wanted to be God can you see I had to learn to leave it in his capable hands all right um, and also when it says that the peace of God which passes all understanding this Greek word passes hupa echo means to hold above can you see that that somehow the fact you don't understand uh, the fact that you don't uh, you know sort of know what's going on you're in the dark that doesn't matter but also it means to be superior to to be better than so when the peace of God passes all understanding it's also saying that the peace of God is superior to understanding and you could translate this verse when Paul says in the peace of God which passes all understanding you could translate it the peace of God which beats having mere understanding hands down is it? doesn't matter if we don't understand the Lord understands he knows what he is doing all right so we're talking about this togetherness you don't know what's happening everything's a get barber but there's a stability there your sinful nature's not going bananas or you've heard someone's someone's starting to turn against you maybe a friend starting to you know you they're saying things about me well you know it's not fret 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 worry 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 which then leads to I'm gonna kill them you hand it over to the, you feel the pain of it, Jesus felt the pain of it, you feel the pain of it, but the peace of God holds you together in the light of that pain, in the frontal assault of that pain, and also it keeps your sinful reactions from coming out and wrecking the whole situation. Now then, the question is, do you want this? I do. More and more and more, I want to move in this. But, let's just remind ourselves, we've seen that there are conditions in the previous verses so if you want to be like this if this is what you want to move into if you want to sort of say well next year I want to be significantly more like this than I am now if you want to make progress here are the conditions rejoice always be sweetly reasonable and repent of all the little fights you've got going you see if you've got fights you just won't get it these are the conditions, they're how you do it. Rejoice always, be sweetly reasonable, and repent of all the fights you've got, you know, all that, you know, you know, and all that, you know. And the moment it comes out, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, let's start again, I'm sorry, I'll react to it. Um, stop worrying, that's the other condition, stop worrying, and when you are worrying, repent of it. See, that's how you get deliverance from sin, eventually, it's by being honest about it, that's, that's that's what you do. Start praying. I mean, let's face it, why pray when you can worry? <laughs> See? Whatever you're worrying about, pray about it. Alright? And, and as soon as you start worrying, no, I'm not, I'm going to pray about it. See? And be thankful. 
and be thankful. Now those are the conditions. Now more of this and even more wonderful things next time as we come to the last talk in this series.